What is up, my beautiful people? Welcome back to Pass the Torch, the number one podcast in the world. No, I'm just kidding. That's not a real stat, but we are soon on our way with your continued support of the show. Subscribe wherever you are listening. Keep sharing it with friends. We are on our way climbing the charts. I'm your host, Danny Healy, and today I have the honor of sitting down with World Series champion Ryan LaVarnway. Ryan is an MLB journeyman playing for eight teams over a decade of professional baseball. He was a late bloomer growing up, but he went to Yale, where he set an Ivy League record for home runs, and then he grinded his way into the big leagues. He's our first ever baseball player on the show, and I think you guys will enjoy his story. He has some great stories of winning the World Series with the Red Sox back in 2013, where he was playing with the great David Big Poppy Ortiz. He has a lot of motivational insight as he had a grueling journey in Major League Baseball for so many years. So buckle up and enjoy as everyone can learn something valuable from my conversation with Ryan today. But before diving in, I want to thank today's sponsor, Alpha Lee Athletics. At their core, Alpha Lee's goals has always been to create the most confidence-boosting, performance-driven apparel. Months are spent perfecting each design to ensure you look and feel your best with every step you take. With a wide variety of options for men and women, you are sure to find workout and athleisure apparel to fit your lifestyle. Shop countless colors and fits, ranging from workout shorts, tees, stringers, and tanks, to crops, bras, and bottoms, including their iconic, and again, I mean their iconic, Amplify leggings and shorts. Discover new monthly releases and take your workouts to the next level this summer. Head to alphaleeathletics.com today and see what everyone is talking about. New customers can use code ALPHAPROS15, that's ALPHAPROS15, for 15% off their first purchase. That's right, so head to alphaleeathletics.com and new customer code ALPHAPROS15 at checkout for 15% off your first order today, and you can thank us later. And again, before diving into today's episode, I want to talk about the morning blitz. Are you seriously not subscribed yet? Do you want to become a smarter sports fan? Do you want to impress your friends in the office? Do you want to impress the group chat? Then I suggest you subscribe to The Morning Blitz, our daily sports newsletter that gives you everything you need to know about the world of sports delivered right to your email inbox in a five-minute or less read. It's sports centered in an email. It's a fun, quick, concise read of what happened in the world of sports the day before, and I promise you, you will become a smarter sports fan. So head to torchpro.com, sign up for our Morning Blitz daily sports newsletter today, and become a smarter sports fan. Okay, now make sure you subscribe wherever you are listening. You can check out the video version of this podcast on our Torch Pro YouTube channel, Torch Pro to the Moon, and you can help us get there by keep continuing to share the podcast and this show with your friends. But without further ado, here is Ryan LaVarnway. Let's go. So today with me on Pass the Torch, I have Ryan LaVarnway, former MLB player, won a World Series with the Boston Red Sox, my Boston Red Sox, big Bostonian sports fan. So I'm happy to have you on today, Ryan. How you doing? Hey, what's going on, Danny? Not much. So I want to throw it back to the very beginning of your journey. And so where did you grow up playing the game of baseball? And I guess, when did you fall in love with it? I grew up in Southern California, Los Angeles County, and I started playing baseball when I was five years old. Because my kindergarten teacher told my parents that I was not good at sharing and I needed to get involved in team sports. So uh, the rest, I guess, is history. That's fantastic. And you you obviously had a very successful childhood and all that playing baseball. And you went off to Yale, an Ivy League school, and played baseball at Yale. Um, obviously, great school academically. Not known for their baseball, I imagine. I don't know too much about Yale baseball. But I guess, did you have any other bigger college offers than Yale at the time? I did not. I was 
never a big prospect at a high school. And I think that stemmed from being young for my grade and also being a late bloomer. I, I grew four inches as a freshman in college. And I think a lot of people have experienced this, at least athletes that want to put on weight. I couldn't put on weight or muscle or strength when I was in high school. I was always trying to eat as much as I could, take the muscle gainers, like the extra calorie shakes. And then freshman year of college, when I grew those four inches, I also put on 40 pounds. Wow. Wow. And so you were playing catcher through, I know you played a little bit of first base and later on in your MLB career, but you played catcher at Yale, right? I actually was never good enough to catch on my high school team even. Wow. We had a kid in my grade, his name was Sammy Donabedian, that had a full beard and was fully grown at 14 years old. <laughs> and he was maybe almost a year older than me, which in high school is, is a big difference. Uh, but he was just more grown and he was just better. I, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable enough with my career. There's no arguing. He was better than me in in high school. So for me to play on the varsity team and I didn't, I didn't really start on the varsity team fully until my senior year of high school, I had to go play outfield because I wasn't good enough to catch. So I went and played outfield in high school. I got recruited to Yale as an outfielder. And then after my freshman year, I told my coach I wanted to catch again, and then I transitioned back. Talk about a late bloomer. That, that is literally the definition of a late bloomer. So, I mean, it worked out for you, and, I mean, you crushed it. You won an NCAA college baseball batting title. Is, is that correct? And slugging title. And slugging title. So what year was that in, at Yale? Yeah. 07, sophomore year. Sophomore year. So the first year after you made that switch to catcher, you just you figured it out at the plate. So it's, it, you make it sound so simple. Like there was not, not a year's worth of work involved. Um, yeah. I actually want to, I actually want to take it back to my senior year of high school, if you don't mind. Okay, so you, go for it. you told me that this pod is all about lessons learned along the way, your journey as an athlete. Yes. For me, I can look to a very, a specific three word question that my high school coach asked me that changed the trajectory of my life and career. And it started when we were stretching on the blacktop, we're in neat lines of eight, right? You know, stretching and the coach is walking around, bombarding us with what's going to happen at practice that day, uh, telling us that we didn't beat the worst team in the league by enough runs and we're going to run until we puke. He's, he's just letting us have it. And, and it's early in the season. He says, who's going to bat fourth for us next week? And, and I knew the answer wasn't me because I was not the best player on the team. I hadn't started until that year, senior year. And we had four guys with scholarship offers. I didn't have any. We had people that had been on varsity for multiple years. I had just made it, but I was a smart Alex 17 year old desperate for his attention, right? Because I wasn't the best player on the team. So I raised my hand and I kind of sarcastically was like, Hey coach, why not me? Right. And instead of listing all the reasons why it shouldn't be me, he just crossed his arms and kind of cocked his head to the side and squinted and said, Ryan, why not you? <laughs> and it was like, my, my brain exploded with the possibility that, Ooh, maybe I could hit fourth. When I had, I had set this realistic limitation of my place on the team and my top ceiling of ability was to be a role player. And instead, he, he gave me permission to think that I could be better than I thought I was and to step outside of the role I had fallen into. And I went from being benched the year before to I did hit fourth by the end of the year. And I hit 482 with eight pumps. And, and I made all conference on a team that won the state championship. I was ranked third in the nation Let's go. and I went from no offers to, to getting to play at Yale. 
because of the words, why not you? Why not you? You you can only hold yourself back. Like you can make yourself as good. Like you got to put yourself in those situations and trust yourself and have that confidence. And when you get confidence in something and you stand at the plate as a confident hitter, like the sky's the limit for you. I, I feel like a lot of people fall into the trap of allowing themselves to, to set realistic expectations. But great greatness and extraordinary achievements are not realistic. So why stop at realistic expectations? They're holding you back. Couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. And you went on to accomplish some great more milestones while at Yale. I, I could list off your records, but I, I think you also set a home run record, right? And, and all this stuff. And so you get drafted. The MLB draft can be interesting. Like for those that don't know, you're actually my first ever, you're my first ever MLB interview. We've done, this is probably episode 50, 60. This is uh, I'm on our first, yeah, my first MLB guy. So um, the draft process is different, right? So you got drafted in 2008, um, but you were probably still at Yale and you probably don't play in the minor leagues pro teams for a few more years. Is that how your process worked out? No, different. Baseball, you have to, so if you step on a college campus as a baseball player, and it's a four-year granting institution, you have to go for at least three years. I know that football, you have to go for one. Basketball, you have to go for one. And hockey, if you, it's like a draft and follow process. They own your contract for seven years. Baseball, once you're draft eligible, you have to declare. Yes, I'm going pro. No, I'm staying amateur. If they draft you, you go. So after my, you know, my sophomore years when I was All-American – national batting title, all the things. Junior year, I was actually having a better year than that. I was topping myself, and then I, I got hurt. I, I tried to dive over the catcher's head against Harvard like an idiot. <laughs> and I hurt myself, so I missed the second half of that season. But I got drafted in the sixth round by the Boston Red Sox. And as soon as my wrist surgery healed, I went to rookie ball um, extended short season or advanced short season, whatever they called it at the time. And that was in Lowell, Massachusetts, the Lowell Spinners. Oh, I know them well. Yeah. And and then the next year I was in I was in spring training with all the guys. Yep. Got it. And so you get to spring training. You had to do a few years of minor leagues, right? Is that correct? Before you actually made your MLB debut in two thousand eleven with the Red Sox? Yeah, so I had to I had to go up the levels and I, I for people that don't understand how minor league baseball works, I like to use the metaphor of the high school varsity being the major league team and the JV's triple A. The sophomore team is double A. The freshman team is, is single A. And there's multiple levels of single A. There's multiple levels of rookie ball below that. So I started at the bottom and had to yeah. work my way up each level from Lowell to Greenville, South Carolina, to Salem, Virginia, to Portland, Maine, to Pawtucket, and then eventually up to Boston a little over three years later. That that couldn't that must be such a mental grind. And before I get to your MLB debut, I just want to turn it back a little bit more. So, you said you were a late bloomer. You were successful in college early on, um, and then you got drafted. But was it always like your dream? Like when did it become a reality for you that you could play major league baseball? And was that at like a young age, or or was it like you said late in your college years? It's, so it's a, that's an interesting question the way you frame it because. I knew from the time I was five years old that I was going to play in the big leagues. And as a five-year-old, is that realistic? No, it's not. 
right? Because I know the math on this now as a 35-year-old man. I know the math is that 7% of high school baseball players get to play in college. 9% of college baseball players get to go pro. 16% of pro players make it to play one day in the big leagues. Yeah. And then only 50% of players that play one day in the big leagues play a year. So are you better at math than I am or should I take out my calculator? I'm horrific at math, but I know the odds aren't great. So there's a 99.95% chance that you're not going to play one year in the big leagues. Right. If you even play on the varsity in high school, which is tough for, to begin with. Yep. But I, I knew my truth when I was five years old was that I was going to do it. I feel like there's a duality in knowing your ultimate goal or at least focusing on your ultimate goal, keeping that in your heart, and then taking care of the, the daily steps along the way. Because I wasn't good enough to even make my high school team until my senior year. So, like, I clearly wasn't good enough to be a big leaguer. And my freshman year in college, I had a very average season in the Ivy League where Yale baseball has produced more U.S. presidents than major league hitters. <laughs> Is that a real stat? That's a real stat. I love that. The I Yale baseball that. team has more U.S. presidents than big league hitters. That's awesome. But I knew I would be that guy or I would I would get there eventually, at least in my own soul, right? And if anyone was going to try to tell me no, I'd tell them to piss off. Yep. You need to have that confidence. And so, like I said, it was a mental grind. During those early years in the minor leagues when you were playing whatever it may have been, AAA, AA, did you ever think that you weren't going to make it to the big leagues? Uh, no. I, I, it's Again, there's, there's times when you doubt it, maybe, but – Failure was not an option. It wasn't even on the table. You know, now that I'm retired, I, I, I do Ironman races for fun. And 25% of people that start don't finish. Really? It's not an option for me. If I have to crawl across the finish line, I'll get there. It might not be pretty. I might be bleeding. But it, not finishing is not an option. And that's, that's how I felt with baseball as well. Yep. So you finally get to that first MLB debut. Was that the glorious historic Fenway park that we all know and love. No, my debut was in Kansas city. David Ortiz ah. had an Achilles injury. So my, my first eight games in the big leagues were DHing uh, for an injured big poppy. Got it. What was big poppy like as a teammate, but I just sidetracked because uh, again, as a Boston fan, I just, I've met big poppy in the past, but uh, I mean, seems like a incredible person. He's obviously this Boston sports hero, but we'll sidetrack for a second. Give me a little big poppy background and story. Big, big poppy is, is larger than life. Every time you see him, even, even like, I know him, I got a cell phone number. Like I've been to his house. Like he's still larger than life. Even to me, he, he's an incredible personality. I, I still, even as a former teammate, feel a little distant from him because he's such on a pedestal he's a superstar he's a hall of famer i can't relate to him on on a lot of the levels that he's on uh, but he he took the the pressure off everyone else because you knew if you didn't do it david would take care of it on the field yep. talk about a guy with a confident swing too and so that that year in 2011 how how often were you kind of again because in baseball you can be called up called down in a, in a matter of days like was that a, was that an often thing for you or were you on the roster for a while that season so that's kind of the story of my career is i was up for those first eight days i played great i did everything within my control and then eight days later big poppy's achilles felt fine back down in the minors and over the next 12 years that i had some major league service time up and down i got called up sent down traded or outright released 26 times 
26. Wow. How, how do you kind of stay in that? And like, what, what are you focusing on of like, all right, now I'm back down. Like, it's just like, all right, got to take this day by day. Got to play well. Like what, what is your number one mental focus when you're going through that kind of taxi squad process? So for me, I think there's, there's three things that really helped me. Um, maybe, maybe I'll say four things. One is, is the why not me attitude, the why not me mantra. And there's more with it. There's, there's also why not more, why not me and why not more? Uh, number two is I always felt like I had more left in the tank. I felt like there was good baseball ahead of me and that I still had the ability, had the talent to get up and make a splash and, and stick around for a while. Uh, and then I believe that, you know, and there's a, there's a stat to this in positive psychology that 75% of job success in any field depends on your support system and your mindset to see any obstacle as an opportunity mm. instead of as a threat. Mm. So anytime I got sent down, I was trying to think of what's the first next step that I can take to make myself better to improve my talent level, to improve my ability in the eyes of the organization who's making the decisions to call me back up. Mm -hmm. And again, you, you were called back up a few times with this Red Sox team before moving on to the later stages of your career. 2013, right? Great, great year for Boston Red Sox and, and yourself. They go on to win the World Series to flash forward a little bit. Before that, they get to the postseason, right? What was, what was your roster situation throughout the postseason? Did you get in a few games or were you kind of watching from afar i was traveling inactive for the playoff run so i was with the team i took batting practice i went to every scouting meeting and was there in case there was an injury but mm. did not play emotionally like what are you thinking like because you you always put yourself in those situations like right like it's like you're the backup quarterback or something like do you like you always want to get in you always want to play like you're, you're never going to root for an injury like obviously not but like I guess, like, what is your emotion? Like, are you into it as into it as you would be if you were on the field? Like, do you want them to win every game? Are you like rooting it? Like, what is your put me in the state of you during that? I still, run? I still remember, I still remember the meeting when John Farrell called me in and said, "Hey, we're gonna bring you with us, but we're not gonna make you active." And he he took an a, apologetic tone. Yeah. He said, "Hey, you've done so much for us this year. I hit 300, 299. Two nine. We'll call it three hundred. Uh, I hit three hundred that season. Uh, yeah. I played in thirty games during the regular season. I helped us get to the playoffs in a big way. Yeah. So John Farrell was was apologetic when he told me that they were going to only carry two catchers. When oftentimes teams decide to carry three, mm. and I still remember that I didn't feel I needed an apology. I was thrilled to be with the team, and my number one priority was winning. Yeah. Like we're here to win. I don't need to make my mark. Like I'm part of this club. Let's do the dang thing. Yeah. So the whole time, honestly, you, you asked what my emotional state was during the playoffs. Uh, I would say is stress eating an emotional state. Yeah, that, that works. That I was, works. I was snacking constantly cause I, I felt out of control and I, you know, I wanted to win so bad. So I, uh, consoled myself with, with, uh, clubhouse candy. Yep. Kudos to you, man. I feel like that's a hard thing to do is like, you're not the guy's number who was called and, and you got to be supportive of your team and you you still got to play that role. Um, so, I mean, I don't think every athlete does that the same and uh, baseball is obviously a major team game, so it has to be, but there's other sports that aren't. So uh, I guess, I guess kudos to you. Um, did you, do you have a, do you have a world series ring? Yeah, it's right behind my head. You see it right there. 
Oh, let's go. And then That's I know awesome. you can't you can't see my whole bookshelf behind me, but above my head there, two of those are the World Series champagne bottles that we popped and sprayed mm-hmm. everywhere. And then the next day we cleaned them off and the team signed them. That's awesome. And then the third one is a bottle of Vuv that John Lester bought everyone and had it engraved. That is a great present. And I, I saw on your uh, Instagram recently, uh, so yeah, 2013, so 2023 now. So the 10-year anniversary, you were back in Fenway. Um, earlier this season um, what, like are you guys still a brotherhood good friends with a lot of those teammates like what is your bond like after winning a World Series ring that was pretty special that was pretty special in the city of Boston and the, the Boston Red Sox in particular do a great job of bringing us back keep, keeping us tied to the community that World Series team it meant so much to us as players but especially after the Boston bombings that year I think it meant so much to the city that there's a special bond between that team and that city forever hundred percent big poppy speech of Boston strong. This is our city, man. Like that gives me chills now talking about it, but, uh, it was special. Um, and so, yeah, moving on a few more pit stops in your career before we kind of get to what you're doing beyond, beyond baseball. But 2014, I believe is when you kind of made the switch from catcher. You had to go place first base. Is that correct? A little. Yeah. So again, John Farrell called me. I remember I was walking into a movie and he, he called me and he said, Hey, uh, you know, we have we have this young prospect Christian Vasquez coming up behind you. He's pretty good behind the dish. We want to keep your bat in the order. Will you are you willing to learn how to play first base because that's what's best for the team? And you know, you just gave me kudos for for being more of a team player. And I I, I took that that route with with uh, Farrell on the phone. I said, yeah, of course. You know, whatever the team needs. But I can be honest. I called my agent right away and was like, I don't want to play first base. <laughs> Get me out of this, man. Uh, so I ended up learning to play first base and it ended up being really great for me in my career. Cause I, I ended up playing almost 50, I think 51 games at first base. So it was a good move for me to be versatile, but I ended up going back to catcher cause 2014 was my last year with the Red Sox organization. Then I, I played for seven other teams in the big leagues after that at 12 other teams overall, but being able to play first and catch and DH, I even got a game in left field at the end of my career. So being a little bit more versatile ended up being beneficial for me and the team at the time. Being able to add value in many different spots of any type of organization, and whether you're whether you're an athlete, whether you're an employee, very important for success. Fought against. I fought against that one at least internally, and on my my private team, I fought against that one. But I'm glad I I'm glad I did it eventually. That's awesome. And so fast forwarding a little bit. So not MLB, but still baseball. 2020, you go to uh, the Summer Olympics, right, for Team Israel. Um, I believe Jewish heritage. I'm also, I'm half Jewish as well. Um, but, uh, so you play for team Israel. Was that like the coolest experience ever? I mean, you crushed it in the, in the, in the games. I think you had what the, the fifth highest, uh, slugging percentage. Ooh, I didn't know that stat. Thanks for that one. I'm yeah. going to use it. Can I use that? You can use that. I think it was 700 was the fifth highest. Sweet. I yeah. did hit two pumps against, uh, Korea. Did you? I'm surprised the Korean team never signed me. I killed their pitching, but, uh, that's neither here nor there at this point. Uh, no, the Olympics was incredible. Um, it hadn't baseball had not been in the Olympics for three rounds. Wow! So my entire professional career and and this next Olympics in Paris, they're pulling baseball and they're going to insert break dancing. Yep, that face. That's how I Why? feel too. Why? Um, I think baseball is not a truly global game at this point. There's it's America's pastime. No, I mean there's what two hundred. Two three hundred countries in the world. I don't know this answer. Two sixteen. I think there I think was two hundred and sixteen Olympic yeah. 
delegations. So we'll say there's 216 countries. 75 play baseball? Yeah. Maybe a third. So it's not maybe that. I, I've come to think of the Olympic Games as a college curriculum. And the home country gets to choose four electives. And every sport, every country has to earn their place, earn their bid to compete in. The home country, the four electives they choose, they get an automatic bid. Mm. So I I use that metaphor because I think people can understand it. Japan is baseball crazy. So Japan chose baseball and softball as two of their electives and they got an automatic team in. Right, because the games were in Tokyo, right? Yep, that makes sense. The next Olympics is in Paris. Baseball is not in the core curriculum. France doesn't play baseball. Not an elective they're choosing. Yeah, that makes sense. So we have a we have a podcast under our sports media network uh, under Torch Pro called the Keller and Kess Show. It's it's Megan Keller, Amanda Kessel. They're two uh, USA Hockey Team USA Olympians, and they tell me all these great stories about Olympic Village. Are those true? How, how fun is Olympic Village? Uh, I don't know what their stories are to know if they're true. It was a blast, and I was yeah. there for the COVID Olympics, so I'm ah. sure theirs was exponentially more fun and exciting than than my experience. I enjoyed the cafeteria and the weight room the most because that was the place that even during the COVID Olympics when everyone had a mask on and the cafeteria had plastic partitioning between every seat in the 3,000 seat cafeteria, you got to interact and see the other athletes. And when you're in Olympic Village, it's mandatory that you wear your team's gear at all times. So everyone's in their country's colors, flags, team, sweatsuits, shorts, t-shirts, whatever, paraphernalia. And, and the gym the gym maybe was my most favorite because as a baseball player, what we do in the gym is is not impressive. <laughs> we're, we're, you know, foam rolling in the corner. We have our little shoulder bands or we're doing eight pound weights to make to keep our shoulders healthy. Nothing nothing is impressive about this. In addition to us feeling some body envy around these other athletes, baseball mm. players maybe have the least athletic looking bodies of, of all the sports. So in the gym, we're in the corner doing our little rehab exercises. And as we look around at all these athletes in their colorful team gear, we see New Zealand powerlifters deadlifting 500 pounds as a warm up, and the Argentinian gymnastics team doing handstand hand walking warmups. And then the basketball team from France is on the rowing machine getting loose and the Mexican softball players are throwing medicine balls against the wall and and the the Kenyan runners are on the treadmills and just everyone being so impressive and incredible at the things that make them the best in the world. We're over here in the corner doing shoulder exercises. Yeah, right, right. What a cool experience. I mean, I, I've never visited or been to an Olympics, but I mean, I couldn't imagine what it would be like being an actually athlete in the, in the game. So that, that's an awesome experience for you. So after that, I think you had a, a few more years you were played. I think you played your last MLB game in 21 and then a few more minor league teams bounced around. Is, is that correct? Yeah. I just retired last month. I played in the world baseball classic for the second time, oh. which for listeners, not familiar with the world baseball classic since baseball wasn't in the Olympics. They created the World Baseball Classic as a form of baseball FIFA World Cup. Right. I thought it was pretty entertaining this year to watch. Great this year. I'm glad that the world knows how cool it is because I played in it in the last installment in 2017, and it was one of the highlights of my career. So I'm glad everyone is starting to catch on. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's cool. There's a lot of great international players in the game too today. I mean, Shohei Otani, I mean, he might be the best athlete in the world. I mean, being able to pitch and lead the league in home runs, like it's just incredible. But uh, back to you. So when did you kind of know it was your time to hang up the cleats? I had a baby girl last June. And we've talked about how I got called up, sent down, traded, released a whole bunch of times. Within that was a lot of moving. Because I was traded and, and sent down and released, my wife and I moved 56 times across the country in 12 years. We paid rent in 33 different cities. And I wore 28 different uniforms in 12 years. That's nuts. And, you know, I don't know who they are, but they say that moving is one of the top five most stressful moments of most people's lives. We got really, really good at breaking leases and, and hiring uh, furniture movers and car shipment and calling the electric company and the water company, right? So it's not something I wanted for my little girl. And, and also playing pro sports, you don't get days off. You have an off season, but for baseball from Valentine's day till labor day, I'm gone. So if you have a birthday party, I can't come. If you get married and want me to be your best man, I can't make it. If, if your dad dies, I'm really sorry, but I'm not going to make the funeral. If you have a kid, I'm not going to make the, the birth of the bris either. Graduation parties, everything. So there was a lot of things that I missed over the years. And it didn't feel like a big sacrifice because that was my goal. That was my dream. But once that started feeling like I was going to have to start missing things I really wanted to, to be there for and, and be there for my daughter, uh, my mindset shifted and I knew it was time to, to hang them up. That makes sense. And so a lot of the times I t I've talked to ath retired athletes, right? And one of the hardest parts of their life is this transition of, okay, I was an athlete for however long you were, 15 years, whatever it may have been. And now you're like, what the hell do I do with my life? Like, was that something you struggled with or cause I mean, right now I know you're in broadcasting a little bit, but like when you hung them up, did you have a plan or was it like, what the hell am I supposed to do now? I've been, I've been slowly formulating a plan for the last couple of years and, and putting some wheels in motion for me. I don't miss playing. Mm -hmm. I loved, I loved playing baseball my whole career until the day I stopped. I thought I was going to miss the playing. Or I thought I was going to miss my teammates, which I do. But for, for me, you said I was, a, I was a pro athlete for 15 years, but I was a baseball player for 30. Yeah. I miss having the one thing that trumps everything else. Like the one thing in my day, the one reason I get up, the reason I have a diet, eat the right things and not the wrong things, the reason I get extra sleep and rest, it was always the same thing. Cause I want to be the best baseball player I can be. So my one most important thing got taken away or I, I gave it away, I guess. And I'm, I'm trying to establish what the next most important thing is going to be for me. Cause as I go through my day, I'm, I'm doing some leadership coaching. I'm doing some motivational speaking. I'm broadcasting for the Rockies. I'm writing a, a, a children's book that I'm really excited about. I think you're, you'd be, you would love it. It's, you know, about a, a little boy that's half Jewish and, and half Christian. And it's my story, but finds where he belongs. That's perfect. That's perfect. So I have a lot of okay. things going on that I'm really excited about and really proud of, but I don't have the one overarching most important thing.
Yep. And I think it'll take some time to figure that out, right? You got to you got to dabble in everywhere and it seems like you're doing that just fine. How how has the uh broadcasting been? What does that look like? Are you the color guy on like day-to-day Rockies games? I am doing I'm an analyst for mostly pre-game and post-game shows at this point. It's it's a it's a great introduction and a great training ground where there's probably less people watching the pre-game show than the actual game. But I get to learn the ropes and learn which camera to look at and have a producer talking in my ear and go to commercial and this and that. It's been really fun. That's great. And so you mentioned, obviously, Colorado Rockies. You're in, you're in Denver. So you moved 56 times in 12 years. Are you, you're, you're in Denver for the long haul. That's your place to be. I think so, yeah. This is where my wife grew up. This is where her family is. They're extremely tight-knit, and, and I love it here. That's great. And I think you would be great at the whole motivational speaking life coach world. I mean, just through my conversation with you in the last 30 minutes, I could, I could tell that you would have a successful career in that as well. So I want to throw it to some rapid fire um, before we finish out with one larger question. But uh, you can take one word, one phrase, take as long as you want, but we'll, we'll dive right in. Who is your favorite athlete growing up as a kid? Ken Griffey Jr. Ken Griffey Jr., the kid. Who's your favorite athlete in current day sports? Mike Trout. Mike Trout's a stud. We have the same birthday, by the way, but I had it first. Have you ever played on his teams? On one of his teams? No. Yeah. He's he's no. only played on one team. And I didn't well, I didn't I get did to that one. On the Angels. Yeah, I haven't been on that one yet. I can't I can't keep track of, of I know it's hard. You can't see all the helmets behind me, but I have them lined up for you. Oh, there they yeah, there they are. There they are. Um okay. Who was the hardest pitcher that you ever faced as a batter? Justin Masterson. That's a good answer. Might as well not even put me in the lineup. <laughs> um, I think I know the answer to this one, and I'm kind of kind of teasing you with it. Who is uh, the hardest pitcher that you've ever had to catch for? Oh, you want me to say Stephen Wright because I broke the record for knuckleballs that got by me? That's exactly what I want. Yeah, to say. I know that's where you want. Um, <laughs> we can screw it. We'll go with it. <laughs> He, I mean, his I ball that. his ball was moving like a butterfly. It's impossible. I mean, man. I couldn't imagine. Like, have you practiced, like, catching a knuckleballer before that day? Never. Well, he, before that day, yes, I had caught him plenty. And I had even caught him in the big leagues for two five-inning relief appearances before that. Hmm. That happened to be his first big league start. And in Houston, they closed the roof. It was his first time in pitching in a dome. And, I, you know, things got a little wacky that day. The dome, okay. Well... Sorry to tease you, but I, I had to bring it up. No, that's good. I, so that that's actually a great story. Um, for those of you that that are not on the inside of this inside story, Stephen Wright pitched for he pitched for Boston. He was a knuckleballer. He made an All Star team. Very talented dude. His first big league start, I caught, and in the first inning, five pass balls and two wild pitches got by me, which. Ties the record with two other guys also catching knuckleballers for most pass balls in one inning. And I did I didn't know what the record was at the time. But at, we the Reds they ended up pulling up Steven, pulling him out of the game, inserting the bullpen. We come back to win the game, and I get the game winning RBI. Which people forget. Thank you very much. There it is. But after the game, I get back to my locker and the, the Red Sox media is ravenous, right? They don't let anything go. They, the first question I get asked after the game, microphone in my face, what did it feel like when you broke the record for inadequacy? <laughs> did you know? Oh, I was like, I didn't know what the record was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So then, you know, I, I give a canned answer, whatever. I don't want to talk about it. 
The next day, our Japanese masseuse says, you know what? Don't worry. In Japan, their opinion is that it's both of your faults. That's fair. Which That's did fair. which did not make me feel better. <laughs> I mean, it was a bad. They're bad pitches. They're they're getting by. But no, uh, that that's a great story. Um, I mean, the the Red Sox have had some crazy knuckleballers in the in the past years. Tim Wakefield, to name a few. So, it's interesting. Um, so we talked about Big Poppy earlier. He might be the answer to this question. Maybe not. No clue. Greatest teammate you've ever had. Greatest uh, baseball ability. No, teammate. Teammate Jackie Bradley Jr. Love that guy. Jackie Bradley Jr. Absolutely love it. Human being. Great human being. One reason why. Um, I mean, he's just a, a, just a good person. Family man. Uh, genuinely nice. Josh Reddick also would fall into this category. Genuinely nice for no reason. Hmm. Um, generous. I like that. All right. Switching away from the baseball diamond. Who's your favorite music artist? Ooh, Prince. Prince. That was the... The last interview I did, someone said Prince. I, I think it was Drew Bledsoe. I'm currently I'm currently uh, binging um, a French band on Pandora. Let me see what their name is called. Uh, Polo <laughs> and Pan is what Polo I'm currently binging. Okay, I'll have to check them out. Anyone listening, check it out. Yeah, too. Kygo is also top for me. Ah, Kygo's great. Kygo's great. Biggest fear. Biggest fear. Ooh, for a long time it was underachieving. And not reaching my potential was a huge fear of mine. And you set yourself to have high expectations too. Yeah. Part of what drove me for a long time was, you know, reaching my potential, but also the fear of not. Last one. One word that best describes you. Ooh. It's supposed to be rapid fire. Sorry. I'm thinking. No, you're good. I would hope uh, driven. Driven. Driven works. That's good. I agree with that. All right, Ryan, thank you so much for the time today. I want to wrap it up with one larger question here. We, we talked a lot about different themes throughout your journey, different lessons that you've learned. But if you could pick that one lesson that you would pass along to the next generation to help them accomplish their dreams in everyday life, what would that one lesson be? I want to, so I've been working a lot on this with my uh, motivational speaking and, and getting it, boiling it down to one big idea that I think can change the world and change people for the better. And it's something that Terry Francona told me. Um, the situation, so for some background of when he told me this was when he was telling me I wasn't going to make the team out of spring training. And, and I knew that was the answer already. And I knew that was the answer because I knew I wasn't the best player. And I told him that, and I said, you know, Tito, you know, I just thank you so much for the opportunity. You know, I really appreciate everything you do. And Terry Francona, you know, future Hall of Fame manager, he looks at me dead in the eye and he says, sometimes realistic expectations and being an honest self-evaluator does not serve you. Because if all of us were honest with ourselves, nobody would make it to the big leagues. I said earlier that in order to play more than one year in the big leagues, you have to be one of the best 0.05% of baseball players. Who can honestly say that that should be them? But it's going to be somebody. So tying it back to my other three-word question that changed my life, why not you? Why not you? You got to shoot for the stars, man. I love it. You, you get me fired Don't up. Don't allow realistic expectations to become limitations. I love that. I love that. Anyone listening, 
Shoot for the damn stars. Shoot for the damn stars. Um, Ryan, again, thank you so much. I'm going to have to visit one of your talks. Get all fired up there as well. Um, if you're ever in the New England area, please please reach out. Uh, but, yeah, thanks for coming on Pass the Torch. It was a pleasure talking with you. My first MLB guest. Um, Won't be the and, last. Uh, hopefully to many more. And I'm glad it was a Boston Red Sox player who won a World Series, my beloved Boston Red Sox. So, yeah, buddy. Thank you, Ryan. I appreciate the time, and we'll talk soon. My pleasure. All right, bud. Good luck. Well, you did it. You made it through another episode of Pass the Torch. I thank you very much for doing so. Hope you are already subscribed to the podcast, but if you are not, hammer that subscribe button right now wherever you are listening. Ryan had an awesome story, a unique journey in professional baseball. I loved talking the Red Sox with him in that World Series run. And even if you're not a Bostonian and you hate Boston sports, I hope you learned something valuable from today's Pass the Torch episode. I know you did. So stay tuned for next week as we have another fantastic guest. I'm fired up about it. You guys will be too. So just hit that subscribe button, and we will see you next week. But before leaving, I want to thank today's sponsor again, Alpha Elite Athletics. They're the best apparel in the, in the game. I haven't taken off their clothes, whether I'm working out, doing the podcast, at my desk, going out for groceries, or even hitting the town. Alpha Elite Athletics has it all. So head to alphaeliteathletics.com today and use new customer code ALPHAPROS15 at checkout for 15% off your order today. You will thank us later, and we will see you later. Let's go.